place in our worship where we uh, just reflect together on God's Word and ask Him to teach us. We've been for some weeks now looking at John chapter 4 and the Samaritan woman at the well and the conversation that happens uh, between Jesus and and her. And uh, we've also been in a in a series, really, where we've been looking at our own vision and mission as that relates to uh, missions itself and our support of certain mission partners. I've been asking you guys to, um, to pray, you know, if you would commit to pray for one of our mission partners. That's what that table is out in the lobby. In fact, there's information out there about them. If you pick up a card and pray for them. And I've been asking you to live uh, missionally, and that, uh, too, is part of just representing Jesus wherever you go, and then joining us, too, and supporting our missionaries, giving. And uh, next Sunday, we're going to ask everybody to turn in their uh, pledge card, if they would, so that we kind of know where we stand. And then based on, you know, what you're, you feel led to, to give, we're trying to raise $107,000 over and above what we put into our regular missions thing. And uh, So, you know, based on what you give, we're going to just kind of line up all of our mission partners and we'll just delete them one by one. Whatever you don't give and support, we'll just, you know, I'll put my hand over their head. If you don't like that one that much, the applause will be less and off they go. Does that seem reasonable? (laughs) Oh, gosh. If you're visiting, you're thinking, wow, this is a a weird church. Um, So we have uh, 60 ladies away at a ladies' retreat this weekend. Uh, down in Colorado Springs. So as we pray for ourselves, we'll pray for them and their worship and what's happening down there. We're pretty excited about this. It's been a while since we've had a gathering of ladies uh, like this come together for a retreat. So we just want God to speak to them uh, in the way that he would speak to us this morning. So pray with me. Lord, you are good. Your grace is magnificent. It's It's what we need right now, Father. We need your grace ministered to us by your spirit and your word to learn more of you, about you. So we would ask you to do that now. We pray for the ladies who are gathering in worship right now in Glen Area, down in Colorado Springs. Pray for their travels later today, that you'd watch over them, keep them safe. We pray, Father, that, uh, that you would be deepening their friendships and relationships, that you would be speaking to them about quietness, about resting in you, about their relationship with you. And we pray that they would come back refreshed and encouraged and uh, having deepened friendships, maybe made, having made some friendships as well. So God, teach us now as, uh, as we prepare to come to this table that Jesus hosts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. You know, it's interesting when you come into a home or... Uh, maybe you're in an office building and it's a large one. A lot of times they'll have a reception area. There'll be somebody there that kind of greets you. Oh, hi, welcome. Can I help you find, you know, where you're going, what you're looking for, that type of thing. Certainly at a church, most churches have people out there uh, greeting folks when they arrive. And we're uh, in process working with our uh, hospitality team, for lack of a better term, you know, trying to add people to it and trying to get better at at greeting folks, but when you when you uh, come into any context like that where people manage to say welcome, you know we're glad you're here. It's good to have you. I mean that that feels good. We we feel we're welcome. But by the same token, when you get the opposite response, maybe you come into a group and the vibe is whoa 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 whoa. You're not welcome here. You, you're you're not one of us. You need to rethink that. Well, that could be 
That can be very painful if you've ever experienced that. Uh, The human race has a way of dividing people up into us versus them. Do we not? I mean, we're pretty good at this. There's our group, and then there are the other groups. There's our team, and then there are the other teams. Uh, I was on I-70 once upon a time, and I came to a spot where there were some construction, so the two lanes of traffic were narrowing down into one lane of traffic. So there was my lane, us, and there was the other lane, them. And I had to get into their lane, and I happened to look over at the guy that was next to me. I was going to merge early rather than late. And I I looked, and he was in a, a big old pickup truck, and he looked at me as I looked at him, and I'm kind of like, you know, can I... Can I get in? And, and he just threw his arms out and he did one of these, you know. It was like, come on over, you know. You'd be doing me a favor. You're not one of them. You're one of us. I felt great, you know. That was one of the best merges of my life. <laughs> come on into my lane, you know. And I felt accepted. And a little bit later in that same line, because things had come to a standstill, it was bumper to bumper as cars were getting over and this, that, and the other. And there was one of those guys who... He, uh, he doesn't hesitate. He drives all the way. He's in the lane that's got to merge over. He drives all the way to the front, right? Just aggressively all the way to the front and stops and just looks for his opportunity to nose in. Very aggressive move. You ever seen people like this? Maybe you're one of them. He raised his eyebrows at me when I finally got up at him, you know, kind of as if, you know, am I going to get in or not? And as I was passing right by him, uh, I, I thought about the guy who let me in and the warm feeling that I had when he did that. But I didn't, you know, old habits die hard. But uh, so this week we're going to focus on the fact that in Jesus' kingdom, here's the deal. Everybody is invited and everybody is welcome into the community that Jesus creates. That is just a fact. We actually, as I said, have a welcome team here at Deer Creek Church. Um, You may not have thought about this, but if you've been at Deer Creek Church for, let's say, a month or more, you are a part of that welcome team, whether you realize it or not. You are. So this character here on the screen is kind of our perfect Deer Creek Church host. Uh, As a host, we want to have Jesus kind of eyes as as we look at people where we actually make eye contact with them, where we see people the way God sees them, not as us versus them. We want to have Jesus' ears so that we listen when we meet people. We pay attention to their names if we get their names. We we are able to kind of get to know them just a little bit by how we listen. We have a mouth, of course, and we want to have a mouth that communicates warmth, uh, communicates friendliness. We're we're glad you're here. Thanks for checking us out. And a lot of times a smile goes a long ways. Uh, when you're just meeting somebody, just uh, in the way of making them feel welcome. Uh, Good to have a genuine smile, not a fake smile, not a pasted-on smile. Uh, We want to have a heart, like the heart of Jesus, that honors the dignity of every guest who would come and and check us out. We want to remember the fact that, we'll come back to this too, everybody has a story, and they bring their story with them when they come visit at Deer Creek Church or any church, any place for that matter. Uh, That story is the the backdrop to who they are and what makes them who they are at this moment in time. And then, too, we want to have feet, feet like Jesus, so that if somebody looks a little lost, they don't know where to go or what have you, we don't just go, oh, go over there. You know, no, we use our feet to take them over there, wherever there is, whatever they're looking for. If somebody is going to come into the row in here and you happen to have 
you know, uh, secured the prime aisle seat there. Uh, you have a choice if somebody comes to that aisle and wants to be seated further in. You, do you just lean back and kind of make them do, you know, excuse me, one of these deals? Or do you scoot down the row to let them have that great seat that you had already occupied? And so, you know, if you love Jesus, what do you do? We're pretty unclear about this. We scoot. If I'm self-centered, operating in the flesh, then I just, yeah, okay, go ahead. You know, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. Anyway, uh, we want to be this kind of person. We want to welcome people who go out of their way, and it is going out of your way whenever you go to visit a church. You're not sure what you're going to find. Last week, if somebody visited us, they were putting masks on. Think they're going to come back? I do not know. I don't know how that one's going to go, but uh, maybe, yeah. But we want to be this kind of person, welcome everybody. We want to think about, you know, how to do this really well. So, as I said, we're working on our own hospitality team and getting better and adding people to it. If that's something that you would like to do, you're gifted at just welcoming people, you might want to be a part of that team. Now, why does this even matter? Why, is, why am I even talking about it? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because we have a God who loves people. People of all kinds. It's just that simple. Everybody matters to God. I love this definition of hospitality. Hospitality is making space for someone you don't have to make space for. That's what hospitality is. Hospitality in your home. Inviting somebody into your home to have dinner. You don't have to do that. But it's very hospitable of you if you do. But this is what God does. In fact, you could even probably make this argument that when God was creating the the heavens and the earth, you know, he created this universe. And in the universe is this one tiny little planet. And on that planet, what does he do? He's actually making space. He's being hospitable. He's, He's making space, especially for us creatures that he's going to create in his image. He didn't have to do that, but he did that. Now, We are, those of us who follow Jesus, we've become a part of a movement that he started. The first movement of its kind that said, we want to create a community where there is no us versus them. Uh, Everybody is invited to be us. That's how Jesus' community works. And of course, it all began with a God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Excuse me. Now this, of course, is Jesus' story. It's the adventure that we've been reading about now for some weeks, this adventure at the Samaritan well. This is what we read. So Jesus left Judea, and he went back once more to his home, uh, the home region of Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. We read. Now, uh, there's a map to illustrate kind of what's going on here. Uh, Jesus had been down in Judea, which were an area full of Israelites, right down in here. And he was going to make his way up to Galilee, another area full of Israelites. But to get there, there you have this problem, this area of Samaria. Samaria, as we've already noted, is an area where... It was occupied by people that the Jews actually despised. They were half-breeds. During the years of the exile, many years earlier, 
the Jews had been taken up and out of this area and, and carted off to other regions, other places. And a lot of foreigners were brought in who intermarried with the remaining Jews of the area. And that's who the Samaritans are. They've intermarried. And they now dress the wrong way. They believe the wrong stuff. They didn't worship correctly. Uh, actually, at one point, about 100 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, the Samaritans actually had come to hate the Jews so much that they had aided some enemies uh, who were attacking Israel. Uh, the Jews never forgot that. Also at that time, the high priest in Jerusalem actually helped to destroy, up in Samaria, uh, helped to destroy the temple that the Samaritans worshipped at. Now, why did they worship at another temple? Well, they weren't welcome to worship in Jerusalem. That's why. <clears throat> so if you were a rabbi at this time and you wanted to get from Judea up to Galilee and you map quested it, you would get this road that was kind of a bypass road. You can see right there. Uh, you would go from Jerusalem down to Jericho out through Perea and the Decapolis uh, up into this area and then back over. That way you could completely avoid this area of Samaria. The... Uh, in fact, GPS at that time stood for geographically protected from Samaritans. Uh, that's what they, you know, that's what that meant. But here's the thing. When Jesus is going up to Galilee, he doesn't take the bypass. In fact, what he says to his disciples is, we're going to take the Samaritan Express. Uh, we're going to take the road where we're going to be with all of these Samaritans. And I'm sure, I can only guess, but I'm sure the disciples are thinking, uh, here we go again. <laughs> man, oh man, what's he doing? This is so weird. Uh, he's up to something, they're thinking. <clears throat> and certainly Jesus was up to something. Jesus was going to challenge this so deeply ingrained way of thinking, us versus them. And so they, they go right through Samaria. And they come to this well, this place, Sychar. And here's what happens next. It says, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It's a very interesting statement here about Jesus. Jesus is, of course, God, we believe. But at the same time, he's man, fully man, flesh and blood. Flesh and blood gets tired. Uh, everybody here has been tired before. Some of you are tired right now. Some dads who have been watching the kids all weekend long, finding out just how tiring that can be without the spouse, without their wife. Um, it's very interesting to me. <coughs> you know, leaders uh, usually pride themselves on their energy. Have you noticed that? I was watching the Republican debate here recently, and afterwards there were some reporter-type people there asking them questions. One of, the, uh, one of the debaters, one of the Republican candidates got asked the question, you know, are you tired? You look tired. Oh, you should have seen the response. No, no, I'm not. I'm sure he was exhausted. I mean, are you kidding? It was late. They've gone through a debate. Now he's doing an interview. No, no, I'm not tired. You know, you can't admit being tired because speed of the leader, speed of the team, right? Can't admit that. Um, and yet it's so interesting. With Jesus, that's it's not what's going on here. Jesus actually gets tired and tells his disciples, I'm going to sit down. You guys go into the village and get us some food. And that's what happens. So this is not a story about, you know, superhero Jesus. This is a story actually about tired Jesus. And God is going to use Jesus even though he's tired. 
even though he's weak, even though he's not functioning out of some great place of strength. And by the way, (coughs) if you think you are ever too weak or too tired to be used by God, guess again. Not so. In fact, some of the greatest things that we can ever accomplish will come out of our areas of weakness or tiredness where we must depend even more on the Heavenly Father. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, the place that Jesus sits is by the well, and so we have to talk for a moment about this thing in the well. It's a really interesting part of the story. There's a guy by the name of Robert Alter, and he's written a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative, which I've read part of. It's an interesting book. Part of what he talks about in this book is that in the ancient world there were certain settings, okay, uh, where when somebody would hear about that setting, they would know what kind of story is about to be told. You know, what events were going to unfold. They'd know what to expect. For example, it kind of worked like this. If in our day, you're, let's say you're watching a Western, right? And in that Western, of course, there's a good guy who's a fast draw, and there's a bad guy who's a fast draw. Well, you know what's coming. A showdown is coming. A shootout is coming. <clears throat> one of them is going to say to the other one, you know what? You have to get out of town. And if you don't get out of town, there's going to be a showdown. And it's going to happen at what time? High noon. And it's going to happen where? It's not going to happen at 4th and Elm. It's going to happen where? Main Street, right? We know what to expect. Well, in the ancient world, Alter says, the well was a kind of story. Everybody knew what to expect once you introduced the idea of a well. In the ancient world, they didn't have singles bars. They didn't have eHarmony.com, any of that kind of stuff. A well was where a man met a woman, often got a wife. Uh, and uh, a well is going to be a boy meets girl story. I mean, think about Old Testament stories. You've got <coughs> Isaac, whose representative goes to a well, meets Rebecca, and brings Rebecca back as a wife for Isaac. Or you've got Jacob and Rachel. Jacob meets Rachel at a well. You've got Moses and Zipporah, same story. And Alter says you always see certain features in these stories. For example, the future bridegroom or maybe his representative travels to a foreign land. Frequent theme in these well stories. And there a maiden is encountered at the well and somebody draws water, usually the maiden, but not always, not every time. And the maiden then runs home with the news about this stranger who has come to the well. And the stranger gets invited to stay. And lo and behold, the stranger becomes the husband of this woman that was met at the well. Well stories. And they're going to be in this, uh, they're going to be in this, these same features in this story with Jesus and this woman. This is a story about a well. And so everybody knows this is going to be a boy meets girl story. But again, this is Jesus. This is the wrong boy, right? And it's certainly the wrong well. It's a well in Samaria of all places. Uh, and, and these Samaritans, they, as we've said, they dress the wrong way. They believe the wrong stuff. They come from the wrong tribe. And then the woman comes, and this is certainly the wrong woman because it appears she's not even single. My goodness, what kind of story is this? And we're told it's about high noon when she comes to draw water. And in the ancient world, uh, and even to this very day in many parts of the world, <coughs> getting water was very difficult. It was a menial task. It was, it was often given to women. And uh, if you had enough money, you would have a servant go do it, right? But obviously this woman doesn't have enough money, so she's getting her own water at the well at high noon. And so she's not only from the wrong tribe, having the wrong religion, uh, from the wrong socioeconomic group. She has literally no resources to even help Jesus on his mission. And so the question, as you, as you see this story unfold, the question is, what's going on here? 
What is this about? This is an odd well story. And here's what we read. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How could you ask me for a drink? For, and this is a little parenthesis, a little commentary here, you see, by John 4, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. John wanted us to be aware of that. It's classic us versus them, don't you see? This was, the, this was just understood by Israelites, especially by rabbis who wanted to remain clean. You don't connect, you don't touch, you don't talk to a Samaritan. Not only is she the wrong tribe, the wrong religion, the wrong socioeconomic group, she's the wrong gender. Oh my gosh, this is a big deal in the ancient world. Men did not talk to women in public settings. If you were a husband even, and you're traveling with your wife, excuse me, your, your, your wife wasn't somebody whose hand you held as you traveled and chatted as you walked. No, 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 no. Husbands rarely spoke to their wives and vice versa in public settings. It just wasn't done. And so this woman, she knows that no Jewish rabbi is going to have anything to do with her because it's us versus them. But again, this is the wrong boy, the, the wrong man. This, this is a guy who just keeps crossing lines and barriers. It's a really interesting uh, dynamic about Jesus and Samaritans, if you know anything about the life story of Jesus. Jesus tells one of his most famous stories. He talks about a guy who gets beaten up nearly dead, stripped of his clothes and and everything valuable, and he's left along the roadside just to die. And as Jesus tells the story, along comes a Jewish priest, the most holy man you could think of. And the holy man sees the guy by the roadside and doesn't want to himself become unclean. He's got some some good religious business he's got to take care of. He doesn't want to become unclean, and so he just passes by. Next thing you know, a Levite comes by. That's an assistant to a priest. That's one step down, but, you know, still a very holy person and does the same thing and doesn't want to become unclean, so just goes right on by. (laughs) And then in Jesus' story, he makes the hero of the story a Samaritan, a Samaritan traveler. And, of course, he's not just a Samaritan. He becomes what we call the good Samaritan. That's an oxymoron to an Israelite. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. That's a stupid story, you see. There's another time that Jesus heals a group of ten lepers. And he heals them, and they go off, and one comes back. One out of the ten comes back and falls at Jesus' feet and worships Jesus and thanks Jesus for what he's done. And then there's this little note. This leper happens to be a Samaritan. Oh, my gosh. Wow. What is that about? One time Jesus and his disciples are going through a Samaritan village, which is uh, not really appreciating them. As you could well understand, they wouldn't. Oh, this is a Jewish rabbi with his disciples. You're not welcome here. (coughs) And so the disciples just, they ask the question, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Like they could really do that. I don't think... Jesus was handing out nuking, you know, gifts. But that's what, you want us to nuke them, Jesus? That's, and, and, of course, Jesus strongly rebukes them. No, that isn't what I want you to do. When are you guys going to get this? I'm not here to nuke them. And uh, the point is, you know, this was hard for the disciples in their day to understand and to process Jesus' behavior. Let me ask you. You think it would be hard for us today? To process and understand Jesus' behavior. 
Do you think there's anybody on your list, and by the way, you have one, and so do I, your list of us versus them? Anybody on your us versus them list that Jesus would, he'd be traveling right through their territory. I'm pretty convicting when you think of it that way. Um, This was hard for the disciples. Just as hard for us today. Because with Jesus, there really is no us versus them. We just don't think this way. We don't do life this way. Now back to the story. This woman knows that Jesus isn't going to have anything to do with her. And yet he does. We've seen it and been looking at it now for weeks. He actually has the longest recorded conversation with any person in the Gospels he has with a Samaritan woman. Go figure that. That doesn't make any sense. And here's what happens next. <clears throat> Jesus answers her. He says, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And we've kind of processed what that meant. Jesus was promising to give her the life-giving spirit of God himself. Should she become a follower of Jesus? Should she trust him and believe in him? He's going to give her the spirit of God that's going to well up inside her and give her all that she needs to be who she needs to be. Jesus goes on to say, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Oh, my goodness. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. And we saw this last week that, you know, for her, this is really a statement of desperation because she comes to this well every day, probably twice a day. And every time she comes, she's reminded that she's an outcast in this village. Nobody comes with her. Every time she comes, she's reminded that she has to go outside the city to draw water. She's reminded of who she is and what she's done and how she's not accepted every time. And so she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then Jesus tells her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. You know, crickets, crickets, awkward moment. And Jesus says to her, you know, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true, Jesus says. Again, very awkward. You know, folks have wondered, how did Jesus know about this? Well, we don't exactly know how Jesus knew. This could have been a prophetic moment where the Spirit of God revealed this fact to him about this woman. Maybe he heard it somewhere. We we don't really know. What we do know is that Jesus knew, and what we also know is that Jesus knows everything about us. Everything about us. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything. Now, here's the thing about this woman and about uh, really everybody you know. You know, I said it earlier. Everybody's got a story. Jesus knew her story. And what's so shocking is he didn't run from her or want nothing to do with her because of her story you know i don't know what she dreamed about when she was a little girl but i guarantee you she didn't dream about cycling through five marriages i guarantee you that and it's important to note too that in the ancient world in most cultures in this culture a woman didn't have the right to initiate divorce now think about that we kind of think of this woman as very scandalous as just yeah okay i'm married i don't want you anymore i'll I'll get another husband i'll get another husband i'll get another husband probably not what happened we don't know for sure but most likely she's the victim the victim in these cycling of marriage after marriage 
Most likely over and over and over again, she had a man who had made promises to her say, yeah, I'm not going to keep the promise. I'm done with you. We're divorced. And now she's with a man who most likely refuses to marry her because why would he make any promises to her? He's not going to promise her anything. Yeah, we can live together if you want, but I'm not promising you anything. Why should I promise you anything? And yet Jesus treats her with dignity, love, respect. I mean, this is remarkable. It's disturbing. It doesn't exactly match up with my us versus them stories. Does it match up with yours? So she says this. She says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Yeah, darn tootin'. I mean, she's going, wow. I, I can't believe you're talking to me. I can't believe you know me like this. I can't believe what you just told me about myself. I can see that you're a prophet. And then she, then she sort of institutes a little diversion here. Let's talk about some theology. She says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. And that's where Samaritans worshipped. They couldn't go to Jerusalem. They weren't welcome there. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. So she's getting into a little theological debate. Us versus them. Remember, Jesus, so that we're, we're us versus them. You're different from me, you and I. We're different. And, uh, and yet, Jesus sees this person, and he cares about her, and he keeps going with this conversation. Right here, I would have expected Jesus to go, you know, you're right. I'll, yeah, don't know why I'm even talking to you. But he doesn't do that. What he does is this. He says, a time is coming and has now come. Why has it come? Well, it's because Jesus has come, Right? So the, the, the time is what it is because Jesus is here. And he says, the time is going to come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So Jesus diverts this whole conversation away from a debate about location <coughs> and more to a, a, a conversation about condition of heart. And then the woman still kind of diverts. The woman says, you know... Um, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And really, one of the most remarkable statements in all of Scripture is what follows this. The Samaritans also believed that a Messiah would come, but now Jesus does this interesting thing. He makes one of the clearest statements about his identity in all of Scripture. There are only a couple of places where Jesus comes right out and just declares who he is, and this is one of them. With a Samaritan woman in Samaria. He says, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I'm the Christ. What he's doing is he's offering himself to this woman in a way that is so clear, a way he rarely offers himself to others at this point in his ministry. He offers to love her. He offers to be her Messiah, her Savior. And now all of a sudden, you know, this is not a boy meets girl story anymore. It's not even a rabbi meets girl story anymore. It's a Messiah meets girl story. It's a Savior meets girl story. It it is a love story. That's for sure. It, It is about a marriage of sorts. That's for sure. But nobody knows exactly what to do with this. The, all of the circumstances of this story are taking odd twists and turns and going down paths that, man, who would have expected it? Nobody saw it coming. You see, this isn't supposed to happen. 
Frankly, Jesus is not supposed to care. Not about this woman. The story goes on. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Well, of course they didn't ask. But by now they put their foot in their mouths so many times around Jesus trying to figure out what he's up to and what he's doing. At least they have the sense to shut up. But this is what they're thinking. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are we here? And then it says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? That's her question. Could this be the Messiah? And we're told that the people come out of town and they made their way toward him. And a few verses later down in verse 39, we're told that many in that village believed in him. So now there's a Jesus following in Samaria, in Sychar. What in the, what is going on? We're going to leave the woman's story uh, right there. We've looked at other parts of it in weeks earlier, but before we end what we're talking about this morning, we have to talk a little bit about what Jesus sees when he looks at somebody. The disciples look at her, and if you read the text, you'll notice they don't talk to her. I mean, they're still us versus them. They're wondering why Jesus is even doing this. Uh, but, so they, they look at her, you know, they see her as somebody who was wrong. Jesus looks at her, and he saw somebody that he loved. And it's so interesting to me in that conversation that he has with her, you know, they could have gotten into a debate about who's right and who's wrong about where you should worship God. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do it. You see, being right puts, puts me on the opposite side of people that I disagree with. I'm not saying there isn't or there aren't right things and wrong things. There certainly are. But if I'm always going to stand on my rightness, on the truth that I know, I can either love you with it, and figuring that out sometimes is tricky, or I can beat the tar out of you with it. Do you think Jesus could have out-debated this woman? Pretty sure he could have. Yeah. Yeah. He could have beat her into the ground with truth if he'd have wanted to. But he didn't. You see, being loving puts me on the same side as the people I disagree with. And that's kind of interesting to think about. Jesus would always look at people with love. He understood that everybody had a story. Samaritans are who they are because of the backstory, And they needed God just as much as every Israelite needed God. They needed Jesus just as much as every Israelite needed Jesus. And so Jesus calls this woman to himself. Just like he does today, he's still calling us to himself. Uh, there's an old story. <coughs> it's a theological disaster. It's absolutely heretical, but it goes like this. Um, St. Peter, you know, guards the gates of heaven. He lets certain people in and others he doesn't. St. Paul is the chief administrator in this story, the way it goes. And one day, Peter is complaining to Paul. There seem to be more people in heaven than he's letting in. And he's puzzled by this. How's this happening? A couple days later, Peter, Saint, I'm, I'm sorry, St. Paul comes running to St. Peter and says, Hey, I got it, I got it, I, I know what's going on. I figured out the problem. At night, Jesus is sneaking people over the wall, he tells them. <laughs> Point is, Jesus is always reaching out to people that Peter and Paul and you and I would never reach out to. 
He loves people we would never love. Not left to ourselves. And Jesus is just that way. Time and time again, he's always going after sinful people, addicted people, Samaritan people, prostitute people, confused people, people who are wrong theologically, Roman people, tax-collecting people, centurion people, soldier people, poor people, lame people, deaf people, broken people. When Jesus was dying on the cross for crying out loud, you'd think at least there he could have a moment, right? But there's a guy hanging on a cross right next to him, uh, a thief, excuse me, on the cross being crucified for the crimes he had committed. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus tells him, okay, today you'll be with me in paradise. He throws him over the wall. All of which is just to say we have an unbelievable God, friends. An unbelievable God. And I'll tell you what. We want to be like this God. We want to be like Jesus, a Jesus church. We want to learn to love like Jesus and serve like Jesus and care like Jesus. And, you know, we talked about this weeks ago. Jesus said to some fishermen one time, you know, you come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We want to learn to fish like Jesus. And what drives that whole fishing project is love for people. Nothing else. It's love for people. It's seeing people the way God sees them. I read that in Australia, they have these giant, I mean, huge, thousands and thousands of miles of of territory, ranches, cattle ranches. And so they had to figure out what's a way to keep the cattle on the ranch so they don't just wander off and we never see them again. Basically, they figured out there's two ways, two ways to keep the cattle on the ranch. One, build fences all the way around the perimeter of the property, which would be completely cost prohibitive. Thousands of miles of fence, not going to happen. And then maintaining it so... Or they figured out they could dig a well. That was the other way. And a lot of people are into building fences. In Jesus' day, the rabbis would actually talk about building a fence around Torah, around the commandments, around the Mosaic law. So they would put rules around Old Testament laws to make extra special sure that none of the laws were broken. Right? So, for example, Gentiles were avoided altogether. You ever wonder why Gentiles were so anathema to the Jews? Here's why. It was because of their eating habits. They would eat stuff that a Jew was not supposed to eat or even touch. And so, what should we do? Well, let's do this. To make sure we don't become unclean like those Gentiles, uh, we'll never go to their house. We'll never have them into our house. Uh, well, that, because they eat things and touch things that, that we shouldn't do it. We, we won't even have any, any uh, interactions with them whatsoever. And uh, how do you think that carried over to the Gentiles? you think the Gentiles felt welcome into the, you know, tell me about your God. Sounds like a great guy. In, in fact, here's something interesting. To keep from touching Gentiles... Uh, they decided that an appropriate distance was about 20 feet to stay away from them. That sends a message, don't you think? 20 feet. And they had the same rule with regards to Samaritans. Same rule. Uh, the Jews of Jesus' day had rules about their rules. And they would call this fencing the Torah. And Jesus is going to redefine the rules. And he does. He is going to redefine what it is that, 
defiles people. You think that by touching a Gentile, even if they're in need, you're being defiled. Jesus says, wrong. You got it wrong. Jesus would say, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. It's not what touches a man on the outside that makes him unclean. It's what's in here. It's this heart that says us versus them. That's what makes us unclean. And so the point was fence building won't help. That's what Jesus tried to point out. Fence building isn't going to help. You need wells, not walls, he would say. And Jesus was a well digger. (coughs) Jesus said, I have come to give you living water. It's what you've been thirsting for and craving for your whole life long. I have come to make you into a, a new kind of person to give you a new kind of life that's not dying from thirst all the time. That's not building fences and saying us versus them, you see. And so church, you know, we have to decide and I wish we could decide it just one time, but we have to decide and decide and decide and keep deciding together. Are we going to build fences? Some churches do that. I think I may have told this story before, but I've been at this church so long, I don't remember what I've said. So um, once when I was in seminary, I, uh, I got a job being a student pastor at a church, an older church, in a part of Philadelphia where the neighborhoods around it had all changed. They had become Latino. And the people now had mostly moved out, but they still had this church building. So they would drive back to their church building on Sunday morning, you know, for church. But the neighborhood had become Latino. And the church had never figured out how to care about them or even think about them or connect with them or reach out or anything. And what was happening was occasionally uh, the church was getting graffitied or there would be trash on the lawn. And the elders in that church, when I was working with the students, all got together and they decided they were going to put a fence around the perimeter of the church property to keep people in the neighborhood off their big open you know, green fields and lawns. And it was expensive to do it, but that wasn't enough. The elders in the church actually decided that what they would do is they would police the property on a Saturday night, all night long. That's pretty serious commitment. (laughs) You're going to be up all night long in shifts policing the property. But what struck me even back then was, wow, you're gonna, that's a lot of effort, man. And you're not going to put any effort into figuring out who these people are and maybe how you could reach them or connect with them or love them or take the gospel to it. We're just going to fence the property. And, and we're just going to say to them, you're not welcome here. You are not welcome here. And, you know, this is a danger in every church, in every place. It's a danger right here, you know. Who are we going to make the them? Is it people who think politically different than us? Is it people who, I don't know, they, maybe they smoke. Oh, man, we don't want them here. Or maybe they drink. Or maybe they're of a different ethnicity or they come from a different culture. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but... Uh, do you know the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian? By the way, we're, we're Presbyterian here if you don't know, but we're, uh, a Baptist won't wave back to you in a liquor store. That's not fair. <coughs> That's totally not fair. Uh, friends, here's the thing. We have got to decide and decide and decide and decide. We're not going to be a fence-building church. 
Because our propensity, our sinful propensity is to build fences and do the us versus them thing. That's why we've got to keep deciding we're not going to be a fence-building church. We're going to be a well-digging church. We're going to be a Jesus church. We don't want to manufacture us versus them kinds of deals. We want people to meet Jesus the same way we have because Jesus is the one who can rescue them. Jesus wants actually to do this ministry of welcome and well-digging through us, through you and me. That's what he wants to do. Nobody gets a pass on this. None of us. <clears throat> Last Friday night, we had some folks over to our home for dinner, and we talked about all kinds of stuff. We were getting to know each other, and um, <clears throat> it was a great evening. It turned out to be a great evening. The following day, I actually got a text from one of the ladies that was there with us um, saying she wanted to get together again. So I invited uh, them to join us. So this would have been Saturday. I invited them to join us Sunday morning for church, and I said, well, we'll go out to lunch after. And the woman texted back. You know what she texted back? She said, how dare you impose your religion on us? You and your kind make me sick. No, of course she didn't text that back. People don't. Nobody, you know, who's going to text back a message like that? No, what she really texted back, she said, you know what? We can't do that tomorrow, but we'd sure like a rain check on that. Would there be another time we could go to church with you? Is what she actually texted back. All I wanted to say to her was, you know, you, you want to get to know us a little better. We'd like to get to know you a little better. Well, something that's a big part of our life is we do this church, and you're welcome to come with us. You don't have to like it, but, I mean, you know, you, you could come with us. We'll go to lunch afterwards. See, here's the deal. Everyone is welcome, but they don't really know it until somebody invites them. Think about it. And that's true for every one of our ministry partners. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Myanmar or Guatemala or Ukraine or in Denver. I mean, it doesn't matter. People don't know they're welcome if they're not invited. And we want to invite people to join Jesus. And what's at stake really are there are people all around the, the planet and they all need an invitation of some kind, whether we're talking about your neighbor or whether we're talking about Buddhists in Myanmar. <coughs> they are one invitation away from taking a step that will lead them to Jesus. Somebody needs to invite them to talk, invite them to you know, come in and listen and invite them to be a friend and invite them to a dinner. Invite, I mean, that's how relationships are made through invitations. You know what Jesus is doing right now? This is so interesting to me. Jesus said to his disciples, this was after he was resurrected and he was about to ascend to heaven. He said, he said I'm going to go to my father and in my father's house are uh, many rooms. Again, hospitality is making space for somebody you don't have to make space for, right? And he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I'm going there to make space for you. Jesus is doing hospitality for you and for me. And he does that at great cost. You know, it's free to us, but it's at great cost to himself. Because the primary place where Jesus went to make space for sinners, the primary place was, of course, on the cross. And that is, in fact, what this table's all about. <laughs> I mean, man... It's not a coincidence that Jesus um, gave us a sacrament, a reminder, something to remind us of the fact that he's always inviting. Come to my table. Come feast on me. Uh, Come into my presence and 
and sit at my table and, and be spiritually fed and be spiritually nourished. And, and he's the host. This is not a coincidence. He said to the disciples, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He wants us to remember. To remember that his body was broken for us. Remember how he loves us. Remember how he sacrificed himself for us. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then he, then he gave these things to his disciples. He said, take and eat and take and drink. And so he invites you to come to the table today too. He's, he's again doing hospitality for you and for me. It's not an us versus them. There's really, frankly, only one thing required to come to this table appropriately, and that's faith, faith in Jesus. If you know what this symbolizes, if you know what this signifies, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, body broken, blood shed, if you understand that and by faith embrace it and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me, well, come to the table. Come to the table and feast. I'm going to invite those up front who are going to serve us. Uh, There'll be three stations up front. You'll get up out of your seat and you'll go to your left and come around and just do a big, big circle. And and uh, we have uh, wine in the goblets here that have a a bracelet on the stem. That's wine. 